This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 5.11 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 5.11tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, 
Francisco Morales. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Basel Ibrahim. Now, Basel was born in the Ivory Coast and has an incredible journey not only to the U.S., but his journey into the fire service through the multiple departments he's worked for so far. So we discuss a host of topics from the diversity inclusion he found in his native country to performing writ functions at the highest level and everything in between. Before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Basel Ibrahim. Enjoy. Uh, two fires yesterday, so that's a good thing. Really? At work, yes. Had a pretty good uh, garbage truck fire that came in as a fire out, and uh, the engine dispatched by themselves. But uh, I always add ourselves to it. Uh, any car fires or anything that is on the highway, I add ourselves to it just for protection. Uh, and also for manpower, for if it's a car fire, we'll, you know, we'll cut the hood off for the guys so they can get places. But so that one came in as, you know, garbage truck on fire and then fire out. Uh, and then the note said that alarm, the alarm was sounding. And I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. What, what alarm? So literally we pull out of the, the firehouse and I, you have this giant column, man, like giant column i get back on the radio and i asked the dispatch I'm like hey uh this says fire out and you have a fire alarm sounding we're going to a car fire what's going on and they said yeah the, this has a garbage truck on fire next to the apartment complex uh and uh you know the fire is out like uh, uh, the fire is not out uh, as a matter of fact upgrade this to a full structure <laughs> fire assignment i'm looking at the so smoke that, as we speak you know like i'm like this is <laughs> It's ripping. So we sh- we get there. Sure, sure enough, it's fully involved, five feet away from the building. Uh, and it, it, thankfully, it didn't extend into the uh, the apartment uh, right next to it. But it, the heat was so close that it busted out windows on the second and third floor of the apartments. So it could have for sure went in there. So we were in there for a while trying to cut the side of that garbage truck out and. And then last night we had a commercial fire uh, on Colonial Drive there, little one. So it was good shift. Good. Well, I'm going to leave that as the intro. So we are rolling now because I think, you know, that, that sets up your, your shift prior to this recording. That's funny. <laughs> one of my best fires I ever had in Anaheim came in as a car fire. And that yes, it was a car fire next to another four cars that were on fire that were in a carport underneath a two-story wood frame apartment complex. So yeah, we rolled up thinking, all right, we're just going to knock down this car and then end up with a full, 
you know, two alarm structure fire. So yeah, communication, people, that's key. Right, it sure <laughs> is, sure is. All right, so for people listening, welcome to the podcast, firstly, and secondly, where are we finding you on planet Earth today? Uh, well, uh, my name is Basil Abraham. I uh, work for the city of Orlando Fire, and I'm a company officer there on Tower One. Uh, I live in Central Florida, originally from the Ivory Coast in Africa, which is a small country on the central west coast of Africa, right on the Atlantic Ocean. And uh, yeah, that's where you can find me, Central Florida area. Uh, teach and train and take classes all around the country, but in a nutshell, that's that. Beautiful. Well, let's start at the very beginning. And the, the funny segue, I had Pablo Jan- Jenner on a few weeks ago. And Pablo's like, yeah, ba- Basil's from, or Basil, excuse me, is from, uh, actually, well, let's get back to that. Basel is actually how you pronounce your name, isn't it? Basil is the... That's correct. You you said it You said it right the uh, first time, and then <laughs> you Americanized it, I which did. is absolutely fine. <laughs> at this point, it doesn't matter. I'll respond to anything. Well, speaking of, you know, um, American interpretation. He's like, yeah, he's from South Africa. And I'm like, mate, I, I think he's got a French accent. I don't think he's from South Africa. And uh, yeah, then when we start talking, you said Cote d'Ivoire, you know, Ivory Coast, which I know is a, it was a French colony. So let's start at the very beginning then. So tell me about your childhood. Tell me where you were born. And tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings. Yeah. So uh, I am from the Ivory Coast in Africa. Uh, which it's a country uh, that borders Liberia and Ghana, uh, right in the, I guess, armpit of uh, Africa, you you could call it. Uh, A lot of people here, when when you said you're from Africa, they automatically think South Africa, South Africa. But uh, no, it's actually quite a ways away from South Africa, about six-hour airplane ride from South Africa. But... uh, yeah, I've lived there all my life uh, until I was 16. That's when I moved here to the U.S. Uh, due to the Civil War of the Ivory Coast. Uh, and I came here on a refugee visa. Uh, I'm, uh, my, I have a younger sister, uh, and uh, her and my mom moved to the U.S. here. I brought them here four years after I came in here, uh, and that was in 2002. When I came, I moved here in 2002. Uh, so, if but, I can uh, jump in for a sec before we, yeah. we go too far ahead, because I think that's a fascinating, you know, perspective that most people haven't heard. So, walk me through roughly those first 16 years in the Ivory Coast. I mean, what you know, what was it like, and what would you compare it to that maybe Americans, British, Australians can envision? So, if you could uh, a, a comparison, uh, I guess a country that you could compare the uh, Ivory Coast to would be. Uh, like the Bahamas, for instance. It's, uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful country right on the coast, uh, beautiful waters, uh, but it's very third, third world. Uh, the, the infrastructure is not developed. The technology is not developed, uh, at least at the time that I lived there. But uh, it, it was a French colony, uh, colonized by the uh, French until 1986. When it got its independence, ironically, on my birthday. Uh, But uh, so it's a fairly new country, you know, 36 years old. It's right, very, very new country 
independently. Uh, so uh, it's a melting pot of different cultures uh, from a lot of Asian, uh, uh, Asian descents, uh, European descents, uh, Middle Eastern descents, uh, just because of the commerce, the maritime commerce. The Ivory Coast is also, or was at the time, the number one uh, producer of coffee and cocoa in the world. Uh, I think there are no longer uh, ranked number one now, though. But it, it was it's, it's a beautiful place. I've had a great time growing up over there. Uh, I didn't know what I what I didn't know. I guess you know, just living all my life over there. Uh, but the uh, it's it was it was great, man. I mean, my entire family was over there. We had a pretty large family. My mom and my dad each had eight siblings. Uh, on their families, so I had a bunch of cousins, and it was uh, it was it was good. It was good. We had a had a good time for sure. Now I wouldn't go back now to live there after coming to the U.S. and seeing all the opportunities that this country provided me and and all. But as far as vacationing over there, it is absolutely amazing. And uh, the Ivory Coast is a democracy. Uh, so it's not like a good dictatorship. And speaking of the civil war that I kind of touched based on a little bit ago, uh, that's over. It only lasted a couple of years and it was just a political, due to political reasons, you know, the people versus the government. And uh, I mean, we needed to revolt uh, and essentially get the president out of office because he lost the election. But in a nutshell, I'm kind of going all over the place, but in a nutshell, that's a little bit of my upbringing over there. Yeah, no, I want to make sure because we, we did this conversation before for people listening, you know, we kind of had some technical issues, so we're revisiting it. But there's a, areas that I want to make sure that we do hit again. The first thing, when I think of the Ivory Coast, um, you know, stereotypically, I think of, you know, very, very dark skinned, you know, native Africans. And you're talking about this diversity and you told me before about the element of inclusion in the Ivory Coast versus, you know, especially what we've seen pumped through our screens in, in the U.S. the last couple of years. Right. So, yeah, uh, you'll have to prompt me uh, a lot since we're doing this number two take here. But yes, so well, what you're referring to is when I told you that I did not even realize what racism was until I moved to the U.S., and that's that's hundred percent honest. There's a melting pot, giant melting pot of cultures, ethnicities uh, in the Ivory Coast, but everybody is viewed the same. There was no differences between oh, this guy's got black skin and this guy's got white skin, and this guy's eyes are like shaped, you know, a little bit more closed than the other. There was none of that. I didn't even know any of this stuff until really I moved over to the States and started hearing like on the news all the time. And, and, and it was so segregated here. And uh, I'm not sure why, I don't know why, but it was not like that over there whatsoever. Uh, the population uh, in the Ivory Coast of, uh, I guess, black skin, I would say it's about 65% black skin uh, Ivorians. Uh, 
but I mean, it's a giant melting pot and there, the inclusion was amazing. I mean, there was no, no pushback because of the way you look, you know, I never noticed that until I moved here. Yeah. Well, it is interesting. I mean, when I look at, you know, London, especially beautiful, eclectic melting pot of all cultures and, and colors and creeds. And I've always, always romanticized about Heathrow, uh, one of our airports I used to get a lot when I was young. Um, and if you watch the film Love Actually, they literally have a scene that is what I used to envision. All these, you know, people from, from all over the world with their native dress. And it's just, it's incredible. And I think that honestly, the British, you know, the, the Americans deep down, most people are not, you know, don't think that way either. They're not, they're not racist. They're not thinking about, oh, this person took my job and they've got this pigmentation or they sleep with this person. They don't give a shit. But the way it's portrayed, you know, to everyone, I think is so divisive. And what is interesting, I'd love to get your take on this, is you touched on the people had to rise up to oust the president. Now, I've made it very clear on this podcast, it's six years old now, that I fucking can't stand either of the last two dipshits that we've had because our system doesn't allow real leaders to get to that position. So I'll make that very clear. I'm not left, I'm not right. I just want people to... I want to have someone on the top that really addresses the health of the nation. And with a popular 70% obese and overweight and a mental health crisis, clearly that's not been happening left or right for decades. So talk to me about the tension in the Ivory Coast. And then, you know, what was that turning point? You know, what, what made the people be able to do that? And what brought them together so that they unified as a nation? So I think that, and, and everything will correlate here, but I think that the, the cause of all this is the, the Ivory Coast is an extremely patriotic country. The, the people have a lot of pride in being Ivorians. We, we rich in culture and respect of elders. And I'm not going to say rank, but respect of elders. There, there's this huge respect thing that is taught to you since from your parents since you were a kid in school that like you would never, never even consider talking back to your teacher at school. I mean, it was the teachers would come into the room, we would stand up, like just as a respect thing. Yes, sir, yes, ma'am, all the time. And I think that translated into uh, the whole not having racism or division uh, I don't want to call it racism necessarily, but division like we have here. Uh, so it's, it's, it starts with respect and it starts at the base. Uh, so in turn, that whole trait of being patriotic and loving your country and following rules and respecting people, when, you, when the leader, which the current president at the time, had lost the uh, election, the presidential election. So he was the current president, ran to reelect, lost the election. The people voted, as I stated, it was a democracy, and decided that he wasn't gonna leave his spot. He said, I'm not leaving, and ordered the military to uh, kind of block the, the whole area that he wasn't leaving. So the people, which, for years and years and years, we've been taught, you know, to respect and follow the rules and uh, 
all of that, now the head of the country is breaking the fundamental laws of our values and countries. Sounds familiar. <laughs> right? Right? So the people, itself, and at the time I was a kid, you know, I didn't really realize the full extent of what really was happening. I was just like, oh, cool, we're not going to school today, you know? But uh, the people, you know, revolted and said, no, man, you lost and you're leaving. So essentially, they took over, man, and they, uh, they started marching towards the, uh, our version of the White House uh, and uh, trying to get in there. And you know, they tried to do it diplomatically, but he wouldn't have it. And uh, at the end of the day, uh, they were successful. We were successful and got the uh, president out of office and the new one in. But it, it really destroyed our country for a good two years. And I only lived about six months of it before I had to, to leave and come to uh, America. But uh, it, was, it got pretty bad. I mean, there was no schools. They burnt the, uh, my high school was burnt down. The, uh, they had curfews, like mandatory curfews, like broadcasted. If you, if you get out of the, your house after 6 p.m., you're getting shot. There's no questions asked. And you think it's a joke until when, you know, you leave your house in the morning, whether you're going back to school or going to the store and you just see like dead bodies on the ground from people being shot for, for the curfew, you know. So it, it put a, a really big dent into the commerce, obviously people's lives, you had to be redirected due to the instability of, you know, the state for a couple of years. But, uh, but yeah, everybody that was in my high school in my class was uh, dispersed and went somewhere else in the world to finish their education uh, due to that. Thankfully, it didn't last too long. Uh, uh, the, the civil war didn't last too long. And, you know, now the country's back, uh, you know, working as it should. Well, it's such an imp a important perspective that you just brought. And it's something that I talk about a lot, that basically a single person, a greedy, selfish, power-hungry person can create that much trauma in a country. You know, and we see it over and over and over again. You know, these are the tyrants of the world. And, you know, sadly, like you said, I mean, think today with the information age, there's more of an opportunity to do it without bloodshed. You know, if we connect, you know, virtually and, and unify and, and push, we can oust, I think, people in, in a different way. But back in the day when that wasn't an option, the next thing was for people to rise up. And sadly, you know, lives are lost. But again, it, it speaks so powerfully to the system that we use to choose the person who claims to be the leader. Because if we put the wrong person in there, as you know, time has shown over and over again, it can create you know death tolls of, of millions and millions of people. Yeah, and and that president was really liked by the people. I mean, we liked him. I remember my my parents, my dad used to love him. There was no issues, but the minute he broke. The, the law and the trust of the people it was it was over you know so 
So yeah, man. Uh, uh, traditionally, all of us in the Ivory Coast, the the university system uh, after high school it wasn't developed. We didn't really have universities, so the path for everybody to you know, get their education was you know you go to high school, public high school, and then once you graduate, then you have to apply and most people go to Europe because French colony, the main, the main language is French. Uh, so naturally they would go to Europe to get their, uh, you know, degrees and whatnot. And then at that point, some would come back and some would stay. So I only had a couple of years left uh, any, anyhow, uh, in the Ivory Coast before I went abroad and do my studies. But when you're not expecting and you don't have a plan and you just kind of, you got to go now, boom, the country's on fire. You got to go. It was, uh, it felt surreal, but at the same time, I, I didn't, I was 16. I didn't really understand the gravity of the situation. And, uh, I had the opportunity to go to Canada, Europe, or the U S and, uh, you know, I chose to come out to the U S that's the three countries, uh, the three, uh, countries that would give out were giving out refugee visas at the time, uh, and yeah, man, chose the U.S. Do not regret that decision one bit. I can tell you that. Well, it's also important to hear yet another story of someone who has trauma before they ever put a uniform on, because I think that's one of the areas of mental health in our profession that is just—it's not not even realize and i understand why i was only you know brought or educated on that kind of element about five years ago myself but you think about you being a young man growing up you know this pretty idyllic life initially in in the ivory coast and then this happens not only are you witnessing the violence of the war but now you and your school friends your tribe has been completely dispersed and now you're in another country a non-french speaking country so that's before you ever went to you know the the first fire department and put the uniform on so i think that's an important thing for us to acknowledge how do we address the, you know, the, the trauma that someone brings into the profession at the front door. And it's something I talk about a lot. You know, we do polygraphs, we do these ridiculous psych tests and we waste all this money. Why don't we, when we're, you know, taking someone through probation, giving them four or five counseling sessions? So firstly, they have an opportunity to address some of the things like, oh, I was in a civil war in another country and saw bloodshed every day on the way to school. Um, or if you had a great life, beautiful, you still have created a relationship with a counselor that you will carry on through your career then. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good idea. Actually, never really thought of it. But I do believe that it's extremely important that when you have a hiring process that you actually have a personal and personable interview, not just a scripted, structured interview where you ask everybody the same question and then you grade them based on this stupid matrix i if i ever become a fire chief or or whatnot where i have you know hiring power i would 100 percent do a one-on-one -on -one or even you know one on you know one on a panel interview but just tell me about yourself man tell me what you've done tell me what you want to do Tell me about your family. Tell me what you like. What don't you uh, like? You know, instead of just this 
basic scripted structured stuff you know that that's a twofold thing now you're making the potential future employee feel like a person and not just a freaking number right another pawn that we're going to bring on the masses and two you're you're actually vetting somehow because people are really good interviewer or they could lie about a lot of things too you know but at least you kind of get a little bit deeper look at your candidates you know Absolutely. You know, it's funny. I tested for Orlando um, shortly before I ended up transitioning out. And you know, to be completely honest, the EMS scenario, I missed the tube on the mannequin. You know, it wasn't bad at all. I mean, I, I bagged and, you know, recovered from it. But it was I wouldn't say, oh, everything went perfectly. I don't know why I didn't get hired. But I made it to the first interview panel. And they said, you know, what do you feel like you can bring to the fire service? So I'm like, well, um, you know, this is, you know, my experience, whatever, but I've started a podcast. I, you know, I'm trying to bring wellness information and you could see on their eyes, they were like, firstly, I've never heard that before. Secondly, I don't think I want that person on my fire department. So, you know, again, if you're going to ask these questions, the same with my last department, how do you think you can, you know, to can make this department better? And I started talking about wellness initiatives and all this stuff, which I did when I was there. And every time I try to do these things that they asked me about, I got nothing but pushback. So if you're going to ask these candidates the questions, you need to make sure that you're actually wanting to do the things that you're asking them in the first place. You're right. And, and, and again, man, that's, that's a very, very slippery slope right now in the nation, right? We, we are, and I'm very vocal about it. I've been very vocal about it for years, but we are hiring right now. And we, I'm talking not Orlando, but we, the fire service are focused on the wrong things right now, in my opinion. Okay. We're focused on demographics. We're focused on gender, focus on ethnicity. Who cares, man? Nobody cares. The people that the citizens don't care. We've sent out a survey. It said, tell us what's the most important to you. Okay. Like if the gender and ethnicity was like a last, they care about the properly trained, properly staffed performance. When you're in trouble, you don't care who shows up. You just want somebody that is qualified and that's going to be able to mitigate your uh, emergency fast. Uh, it needs to be performance-based, not demographic-based. Now, don't get my statement wrong. There are some girls that work for my fire department right now that I would take on my truck over some guys that work for my fire department. So it has nothing to do with, you know, guy, girl, black, white, none of that crap, okay? But, uh, but to get back to the hiring, 100%, man, we need to get our priorities straight. And the interviewers... Uh, you need to vet them too. You know, the people on the panel, I've, I've been lucky to be on the Orlando hiring board. Uh, Harry panel, I did, I think three years on it until they completely stopped putting anybody of combat guys on there. And they had HR person, the multi bugle chiefs up there. And now it's only those people up there hiring. Which at the end of the day, things you can't control anymore. Why stress about it, man? Like I'm, I'm done with that. At least personally, I can only control my bubble. So I'm going to stay there and make that the best bubble possible. You know, my firehouse, my crew, 
uh, the guys I train and teach with. And that's it. Because if not, you're just going to get slapped on your hand and, uh, you know, be told to stay in your lane and all this other stuff. And you're just creating headaches for no reason. Uh, you can just create influence by, you know, affecting the guys and the girls right next to you. And hopefully as those people grow and move up and spread their wings, they can, uh, you know, affect their circle. And, you know, unfortunately, we won't see the results of all the effort for many, many years down the road. But at least it's forward progress, I guess. Yeah. Well, I've always said this. The only prejudice that belongs in the fire service is those that can and those that can't. And there is no better equalizer than putting someone of any color or creed in bunker gear with a mask and a and a you know an air pack and a, a you know regulator connected so they can't talk, they can't you can't see their skin color or anything, and then give them the same tools that are required whether you're 20 or 50, whether you're male or female, whether you're gay, straight, whether you know whatever. That ladder is a ladder, the hose is the hose, the, the person is a person, you know? So it is the great equalizer. So when I see this, you know, I remember it's been a long time, thank God, but people would, would get all butthurt because I say fireman. Well, you know, I say postman and all that stuff, and it's not anything other than that's kind of, you know, what I refer to. And I say firefighter a lot too, but it's interchangeable. And it means someone who is, you know, in that profession of whatever gender, but that we have done so much damage by lowering lowering standards on a complete facade, a complete fiction that, oh, the, you know, let's say for let's pull, you know, the elephant out the corner for a second. Oh, we need to lower standards because of because women can't do this. What, it, what a fucking disgusting statement. Have you ever been to a CrossFit gym, a jiu-jitsu school? There are women that will murder you in a thousand different ways. And those are the ones that would be great police officers, firefighters. And there are men that would break down if you hit them with a freaking feather. And those would be horrible police officers and firefighters. So you have a standard and you hold it high and you ask every, you know, man, woman, whoever to say, hey, this is the challenge. Reach this bar and you will be one of us. And it's that simple. And then I think the moment we get into that and the bar starts coming down, that is such a dangerous thing that happens. Because if you bring the bar down as a plumber, and I have to use this example all the time, you flood someone's house, well, shit, that's annoying. You bring the bar down as a firefighter and someone dies, that's fucking inexcusable. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. And, and to add to that, you know, I've had conversations with women that work for us. They don't want that standard to be lowered because you're a female. Actually, most of them take offense to that. Why? They said, I had to work hard to get on here. Why are we lowering the bar now? You know, so it really isn't about a demographic criteria, man. But this, holding the standard, uh, not just at the new hire process, but continually. And that's something else. I mean, we can talk. We are going in so many directions right now. We're opening all these doors. We, we can have a week conversation podcast right now. But, uh, you know, annual uh, com uh, competencies in, throughout your career. I mean, it's not just to get your foot in the door. You have to maintain that, that standard throughout your career, if not raise it, you know. But that's another, that's for another day. No, we have I time mean, today. Let's go down that fucking hallway. Okay. Well, let me ask I you, like a it, <laughs> let me yes, ask you this question because you're a fellow Florida firefighter. What do they call 
our academy what's the name of the class that we take the the uh, certification that we get it's called minimum standards so i don't think that could be any more clearly labeled that that mm -hmm. is the least fit and least able you should ever be in your career so to then eliminate yep. an annual fitness standard that you know i mean that and rightly so when people have said james if you're in the right profession with the right people you shouldn't even need a standard i agree a hundred percent but that's not where we are so right. to have that bar that's maintained, and again, that's sensible, that, that revolves around the work that we do, not 500-pound deadlift and, you know, 12 muscle-ups and some of these things that people invent, then, you know, if you keep it there from day one, not only are you going to have a higher level of performance, there's a greater chance that you're going to give your men and women a much healthier retirement on the back end. Absolutely, man. And then and we try to play it like that, to the city or to the county when we're hiring. Hire the people based on performance because all they see the city and the bean counters is money, dollar signs, right? Well, look at it. You have somebody that is more physically fit, uh, more educated, a little bit smarter, this and that. That's gonna, that's gonna save you dollar amounts in the future in lawsuits, in medical bills, in wrecking the trucks and all, all these things. You know, but uh, I mean, I've you you and I are trying to fight this battle, and it's it's gonna take a lot more people like you and I to overturn this. Uh, I'm not I'm not giving up on it, but I am slowing down in the sense that I am actually tired and exhausted of fighting this battle in my department which we're not that bad. I, I love working for Orlando. I wouldn't want to work for anywhere else. We have the greatest firemen. Everybody is well-intentioned. Uh, but I feel like I would, I have a more positive influence if I just worry about my crew, my house, the new hire academy, when they come in, have a small part of that now. And that's it. You cannot fix everybody's problems, man. Uh, but, and, and instead of if somebody messes up or instead of, okay, well, this guy messed up. Now everybody's got to do training on this. No, man, fix the problem. Why did that guy mess up? Okay, look into it. But that takes work and people don't like working. It's easier to send an email or, hey, we're going to, everybody do this training or that. No, man. Uh, we, we need to, to develop strong firemen, strong leader, uh, because if you, have, if you don't have the leadership development, the mentorship, the succession planning, then it will crumble. Your organization, your base will crumble uh, because those people, those strong individuals eventually are going to either move up or they're going to retire. They're going to be gone. Nobody's going to know your name, nothing, right? So you have to invest in the biggest asset we have, which is the people. So until we figure that out, man, it's, uh, it's going to be difficult to do. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's the same thing I talked with the work week. And, you know, I've been very vocal as well. I was a union, you know, pay, a Jews pay a member my whole career. But when I look back now, I'm like, one of the first things that any union does is fix the work week. 
and we have federal firefighters working 72 hours a week. You know, we have, you know, Orange County working 56, Marion working 56. Both of those are under staff. So now they're mandatory. It's an 80 hour work week. And, you know, like where, where's, where's people stepping up and saying, Hey, enough is enough. Like we need to get back to the same work week, if not less than the person who's pushing papers, because we're the ones up at right. three in the morning working, you know, PD codes and primary searches. So that's the other side. You talk about saving money. Think of all the death, destruction, and and cost that comes from sleep deprivation. But you have to have someone with the courage to say, "We are killing our people. We need to change this." You know. But what happens over and over again is, "Well, this is my budget year. I want to look like a rock star, so I'm gonna I'm gonna make some cuts." You know. Well, you're a fucking coward. It's time that we actually right. step up and address these things because I'm I'm personally tired of fucking going to funerals. No, man, you're you're a hundred percent right. You're 100% right. We just got to keep chipping at it. Uh, some departments are able to do that. I know uh, Morton Beach uh, down south, they just got their 2472s in this new contract. Really? I'm going to have to call them that because yes. Boca is as well, yes. but they have for a while, and they almost yeah, got no. theirs threatened to be taken away. No, yeah. So, yeah, get a hold of somebody in Morton. I can put you in contact, but they just got 2472s, man. And that's that's amazing for them. We were talking about that last day at dinner but uh yeah man we just gotta chip chip at it and slowly make progress i guess absolutely well when i don't mean i haven't been told this like a huge amount but when you are when you take your wellness seriously and you're in shape and you eat well it's very commonly thrown across your bow well it's easy for you Okay. Well, I am naturally built like a, a walking toothpick. Um, you know, and so I had to, through my whole career onwards, had to do a lot of strength training to, to have the strength on my small frame to be able to do the things that we have to do on the fire ground. I know you were not always a svelte athlete yourself. So let's go to your immigration story and then walk through to, to the, uh, kind of roller coaster ride that you had to finally entering the fire service. Okay, so uh, I uh, I was able to acquire a uh, refugee visa to the U.S. Uh, when the Civil War happened, and I chose the United States for a couple reasons. Uh, well, one, we used to watch Baywatch on TV, <laughs> and I thought I thought I was going to Miami. So you're like Borat, you're uh, looking for Pamela. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. That's me, man. Uh, and I thought, you know, you hear New York City and Miami and California and, and all that. So I had this vision of the U.S. being this mythical paradise, you know, based on TV. Uh, and then also my aunt, so my mom's mom, uh, married an American that was in the military a long time ago. So she was in the United States. So I'm like, oh man, maybe if I can go stay with her, it'll be an easier transition, this and that. Uh, mind you, I, I had only met her once uh, before my aunt. And so uh, my mom calls her sister, my aunt, they lived uh, in New Mexico at the time. And uh, she asked if uh, they could send me over there so I could finish my senior year of high school. And my aunt said, no, I don't want to deal with kids. I'm done with kids, uh, which I don't blame her, you know, but she uh, said that 
I should try to go to Florida because, you know, the weather is pretty similar to the Ivory Coast, you know, high and humid and whatnot. And uh, so she put me in contact with one of uh, their acquaintances that used to rent their garage as a room. So I got a hold of them uh, and uh, that's where I moved to. So I moved to Deltona, which is a small city out here in central Florida in between Orlando and Daytona Beach. Known for its tropical beaches. Yes, yeah, (laughs) of course. So I I show up here and it's, uh, I'm like, what is going on? There's, it does not look like New York City or Miami or any of this. It looks like a bunch of woods and nothing, no public transportation, nothing. So it was, uh, it was a little rough at first. I, uh, I enrolled in high school. I uh, was close enough to the high school where I could, you know, just walk there. So I would go to high school during the day and then to pay the rent for uh, the, the room, I would, I got a job uh, pouring concrete and uh, driveways at night with a concrete company uh, online under the table. So I would go to high school during the day and at nighttime I would do that. So, and the weekends. Uh, once I graduated high school, initially I wanted to be a pilot, a commercial airline pilot. That was my goal, but uh, I didn't have any money. And, you know, 9-11 had just happened. And so I'm like, man, they don't want a terrorist looking guy flying planes right now. So I had to kind of redirect my, my uh, career choices <laughs> at the time. So plus, I mean, I didn't have any money to go enroll in every riddle or whatnot. So uh, after high school, I uh, started working for a pizza shop that was in walking distance uh, from the house and uh, started there as a dishwasher, then uh, was able to buy a little card and started delivering pizzas. And uh, then I became a cook over there. So Again, and I keep harping on this the whole, like, I didn't have any money, any money. Well, yes, I didn't have any money. Like, I moved here with 100 bucks in my pocket that my mom had given me. So to save on money, I would just take the leftover foods from the pizza shop at home. They were going to throw it out every night. So it was breakfast, pizza, lunch, pizza, dinner, pizza, and Every single day, every day. I've always been very driven uh, when it comes to, you know, work and money or whatnot. I don't do anything half-assed. It's either I I do it 200% or I don't do it at all. So I was working literally seven days a week, like nonstop over there. Because, you know, I was, I didn't have nothing else to do. And I was, you know, making money at the time, like what? four and a half bucks an hour or whatever that was at the time. Uh, but what had happened is, is that by eating all this stuff and being at work all the time, I gained about a hundred pounds in a year without even really knowing. Uh, I didn't really realize it. I didn't play sports anymore. I didn't do anything because I was just working nonstop and eating. 
And so I got to 306 pounds was my heaviest. And, uh, and really without even noticing it, which is the crazy part. Uh, so uh, my, my career change from airline pilot to fireman happened while one of the Deltona fire department crews would, they would come in all the time at the pizza shop to order food. And we just became, you know, friends and kind of talking to them. And they just said one day, Hey, Basil, you should go to fire school. I'm like, no, man, like, no, I don't want to do that. What do you guys do? Do you guys make any money and this and that? And, uh, you know, I kind of inquired a little more and they told me, you know, it doesn't take too long, you know, about a year, you do six months of BMT, six months of fire, and then, uh, you know, then you, you can get hired and go from there. So I'm like, huh, okay. So I started looking and digging a little bit more. Uh, then I uh, started volunteering at a city right next to us, uh, Orange City Fire Department. And I'm like, dude, people get paid for this? Like, this is freaking awesome, man. And, uh, so I, uh, I enrolled in, in fire school at the time it was like 500 bucks, including your, your gear. Now it's, I think like six grand or something crazy like that. But, uh, anyhow, so I en enrolled in school and that's when I really realized that I became a giant fat ass because I couldn't do anything. You know, I, and I was not used to that. I've played sports all my life. I've played soccer, uh, volleyball, rugby. I uh, had a soccer scholarship for the University of Kentucky uh, once I graduated here, but I never took it. So, I mean, I was always active, and that really irritated me that I just wasn't at the top of the class physically, and I just couldn't do anything. So, uh so I started, you know, dieting, no more drinking and uh, exercising and eventually lost uh, the weight, lost the majority of the weight over one year period. And then after that, you know, just kept, kept at it. It becomes, it becomes second nature. It becomes routine. And once you start seeing progress, it just fuels your fire, you know, and you feel better. You just feel better. So when people say, oh, it's easy for you or, uh, you know, you don't understand because, you know, you're, you're not big or you're not fat. I'm like, no, I understand. I 1000% understand. And quite frankly, I have zero sympathy because I've been there. But if you're willing, I will help you get there. I will tell you what worked for me, but you're, you're going to need to do it on your own. We can't do it for you. You got, you know, and it's difficult at first, like everything, you know, the, the first few weeks are difficult, but then it just becomes normal. And there is a direct correlation, direct correlation between fire ground performance and physical fitness. And I truly believe that. Uh, now you need to be functionally fit, but there is uh correlation it's part of the job this job is not easy this job is not easy and no matter how much you you train or you work out or whatever the case is some task will never be easy but your recovery rate will be better 
you're going to be less success, uh, susceptible to injuries uh, and you're going to be able to conserve your air and be able to perform better. So it's, it's crucial. It's a very, very important part. And the, the fire doesn't discriminate. The, the, the fire doesn't, isn't going to be less hot or the victims aren't going to be less heavy or because you're, you're a small person or weaker. No, it is what it is. It's difficult, you know. But, but yeah, so that's a little bit of my journey. Got hired with uh, Volusia County Fire Rescue for a, uh, for a little while. I did almost uh, nine years over there and then left Volusia County to Orlando. And I'm coming on 10 years with the Orlando Fire Love Volusia County. I learned a lot over there. Short staff department, but you do everything, everything. So you learn a lot more than you would as a Orlando rookie. You know, my first day on the job, I was driving. First day on the job, 18 years old, driving a fire truck. You know, uh, one man fire truck, mind you. We became two men after a fatality that happened uh, further away, but. You just do more with less, and this is this is the double-edged sword with us firemen is we're going to make it work regardless. Uh, maybe harder, but we're going to make it happen. So it was a good department, man. I didn't want to leave, but we, we kept getting mandatory and mandated, and at the time I had just had my first daughter, and I was just trying to be proactive for the future, and thinking of a better a place that treated their employees better and, and cared more about their, their members, man. And uh, that's why I took the, the jump to Orlando. Well, let's talk about that for a second because I think that's an important discussion as well. I've had some guys I worked with in my last place that came from Volusia, and I think then they were still to, to a, a vehicle. And they were talking, when did I get hired there? 2013, so not that long ago. Um in modern society, especially, you know, Volusia obviously covers the beach area. So you have a lot of very, very expensive, you know, beachfront property, a high tax base. It blows my mind that that's still a thing. If you look at the kind of priority pyramid, I would say police, fire, EMS, you know, education are at the absolute top. I mean, really, you know, fire EMS at the very, very top, please fire EMS because that's, you know, hierarchy of needs, safety and security is the first thing. So talk to me about that one person experience and let's talk about that tragedy because sadly for every change in the fire service, usually there's a, there's a tragic story behind it, you know, and, and, you know, to me in 2022, having a two person engine in the state of Florida as, as affluent and as busy as we are is absolutely insanity. It is. And uh, unfortunately, they still have rigs that are two man today uh, over there. But uh, essentially, man, first day on the job, I was a one man truck and come out of the new hire academy, which was two weeks at a time. And I had no clue about how to even drive a fire truck or anything. I, I even asked my relief when I showed up the first day, I'm like, Hey man, like, where's the keys? Where, where are the keys? Are the keys in the truck? You know, that's how green I was. And, uh, luckily he's like, I can't leave, man. I gotta, I gotta stay here for a bit. So, but it, that was terrible, man. One man, I mean, you get a call, you have to, 
to figure out where you're going. There was no computers back then. You had those giant map books where it tells you, go to page 44, D2, and then you flip to 44 and then kind of cross, cross-reference, go down and read the map. So you're driving and then you forget where it's at. So you pull over, look at it, and you show up on scene and you have to you know, put the truck in pump and flake the line and go do your 360, come back, charge the line. And they wanted us to, you know, establish command and all this crap too. Like, dude, this is, this is ridiculous, man. So what changed that whole thing was they had a fatality, civilian fatality on the North end of the County. Uh, and while a lot of the other units were at training and uh, one person showed up with a fire rig to put this fire out and there was a lady ended up dying in that house i was not on that fire but uh, that's that fire is what changed the minimum manning for volusia county after that all the rigs went to minimum two man uh but i mean still that's that's not enough that is not enough no way it's it sucks that it the fire service is so reactive and it takes a death or serious injury to to the people that make the decisions because they at the end of the day man they really don't care those politicians and all that stuff man but the minute if it happens to them or somebody they know i'm telling you that law or that rule or that protocol will be overturned like that overnight you know so uh but so Two men, their squad companies uh, were three men across, and they're still working right now to get everybody uh, on a three-man minimum staffing with uh, four personnel on the squad companies in Volusia. Well, it reminds me of um, the documentary Into the Fire. And it's, it's, it's weird. I don't know why it's not very available anymore, but it was a History Channel documentary, amazing. And they had career firefighters uh, paid on call and volunteer. And I'll never forget that this guy was, I think, maybe paid on call, but he was on an aerial and he was the only person on the aerial. And they pull up to this apartment complex. Um, There's wires, so they can't actually raise the aerial. Um, I think it was a third story. So the only thing that reached was a 35. And basically, as he tells the story, and it happened in the 80s. And this was, I think, you know, early 2000s when this came out. But he's just fucking sobbing, still telling the story. But as he's trying to figure out how to do this, he hears this, you know, this thump and this woman has thrown her baby out to try and get it from the flames. The baby dies. I think she gets burned up. And yeah, I mean, and just because in that particular dynamic, whatever it was, and chances are it was probably an area that could justify more people. He simply didn't have another pair of hands to be able to facilitate that rescue. And that is inexcusable. And I get it, you know, in the 1800s when you're in some little prairie town somewhere, but like the whole of the Northeast still leans into their volunteer fire service when they should all be being paid. That's that's insane. I And, you know, nothing against the volunteer, you know, firemen. You know, if they didn't have them, it'd be even worse. But we, we as a country need to... Uh, to really look into that, man, that the, the, the fire service and the police and EMS that needs to be staffed hundred percent of the time, uh, a career paid, man. It's, uh, yeah, that's terrible. Absolutely. Well, I know, and correct me if I'm wrong. There was a, um, a search that you had, was it in Volusia that kind of changed your oh, outlook? Yeah. 
Yeah. So, and that changed my outlook on on training, really, and uh, my mindset on how I started operating. But uh, long story short, we had a fire uh, in 35's first due. Uh, we had uh, three men on that rig. Residential fire came in at night on Jackson Street. Uh, the cops were there. They said fully involved, which is never fully involved to the to the police officers it is but uh, so we get there and they said that the, the ladies in that room the ladies in that room and the bystanders kept saying that the cops kept relaying that so we made a push you know and uh i searched that room you know no less than five or six times uh and i'm like okay it's clear and they're like i'm telling you that she's in there she's in there like Okay, well, let's look again. You know, we go back, we look again. You know, me, mind you, you know, the guy on the nozzle is keeping the fire in check, and I'm played off to kind of search that 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 room. So not much heat, but I mean zero visibility in there. Uh, and uh, kept searching, kept searching, and I'm like, no, there's nobody. That room is clear, you know. And uh, come to find out that that room was not clear. And uh, I just, I probably, I was touching that lady the entire time, the entire time, man. And uh, just never registered that it was a person. Never. Not one time. Because I, I think that my brain was conditioned at looking and feeling a dummy, a mannequin. And, you know, this hard, plasticky thing. Uh, and once you took the visibility away... I had no, nothing else to base it on. You know, I was four years on the job that I guess that was my first victim removal, you know, even though unsuccessful, it's still a removal. Uh, so, so that really opened my eyes, man, at a few things like one, we need to train realistically in the fire service and, and two, we need to do everything fast, man. Because even to this day, I'm like, man, if I had touched her the first time and recognized that it was a person and removed her, would she had made it, you know? And I guess we will never know. I'd, I'd like to say no based on the conditions that, that I can recall from there, but we'll never know. So speed and Re realistic training man like it, it, training blacked out all the time training with mannequins you know training without letting you use your tools like your flashlight your tick your your cutters whatever the case may be we need to stop doing that initially you know we need to master the skills and then introduce the theatrics after we master the skills uh, so that's, that's, that's how I do training now, man. And, uh, yeah, man, that, that was that call. What well, something I've talked about a lot. I think what makes it bearable when you lose someone is if you know in your heart of hearts, you did everything right, that you train for that. You've taken your fitness seriously, you take your training seriously. So when there's one of those second guess moments like that, that's the shit that sticks with you. And so when you look at the complacent firefighter, for example, 
you know, that's going to that's gonna haunt you. It's another reason to train, another reason to get your fitness where it should be, another reason to own your sleep when you're off shift is, you know, God forbid, you know damn well that you didn't make it to the top of that building or you kind of half-assed a search because you were so tired and you were hot and you were scared and you want to get out. You know, those are the things that, yeah, at that moment you might get temporary relief, but that fucking image is going to be burned into your mind. Right. So that 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 incident is a, it's a kind of twofold for me. Yes, it sucked, but at the same time, it kind of opened my eyes to what I needed to do, and it completely changed my mindset, my training model, my outlook on everything in the fire service. I mean, that moment after that fire is when I really became, I would say, a fireman after that. Took, you know, everything seriously where I'm going to be the fastest, the strongest, the smartest on everything, which it never perpetuated. I mean, I never, I'm not the smartest, the fastest, the strongest, but my goal is to be that. You know, so I like to think that because of that failure, it actually ended up saving the lives of a few more people throughout my career because of that change in my mindset. And and now with, you know, me going and training and teaching with a lot of people around the country, hopefully we can multiply that mindset uh, across you know, the fire service. And I don't know if this is just like a, uh, I guess a feel good reason for me, you know, I'm telling myself, Oh, well, you know, I failed you, but you know, this is what we're doing now to try to make it better. Even though you can't make that situation better, you know, for that person's family or whatever, but I don't know, maybe it's a defense mechanism, but I truly believe that that instance really changed my, my whole mindset on, on how to properly train and take the job a lot more seriously than, than I, I did at the time. You know? Yeah, well, I think it's also all you can do, you know, regardless of whether that, that lady would have made it or not. You know, like you said, that moment has passed and you know, as you, you know, the chance of surviving you know, superheated gases, you know, full of toxins is, is slim to none anyway. But um, the next thing we can do is change things for them. So I think I don't, yes, there's a, there's a mental health, like healing element or, you know, justification, but also it's honoring the people that we lost the same way as the people we lose from cancer and overdoses and suicides. We don't just give them a fucking kick-ass funeral and then go high five each other and go back and do exactly the same thing we've always fucking done. You actually grow a set and say, all right, enough is enough we've got to start changing some things you know what i mean and that's that's how you honor the fallen um so just while we're at this this moment with them what were some of the things that you did change with your training with your 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 physical side your mindset so i well the the physical side had already started you know coming back since i i was hired i had four years on the job back then that happened in 2008 that call uh but like the, the, we got back to the firehouse the next the very next shift we the guys I, I'm like go go lay somewhere in the freaking fire station and I'm gonna find you with my gloves on like a person not mannequins uh, and just we started doing a lot more search based training 
the Volusia County wasn't really big on search. Their search culture wasn't really big. It was suppression type deal. Hey, let's get on the knob, put the fire out, put the fire out. Uh, but if really at the end of the day, uh, it, getting the people out is the priority. Now I understand if you put the fire out, the problem goes away. I, I get all that. We're not going to get into this whole thing. But if we're going to prioritize, if you have short staffing, and you're going to prioritize on a residential, are we VSing that bedroom or am I going to stretch a line and go find a fire and pour water on it? I'm going to VS that bedroom. That's me. Especially in Florida, because I mean, the first en- the first rig may well be a two-person rescue crew that has no, yeah. no water and has no ladders. Right. So it kind of changed my, my mindset on that. And also speed, like, like fast, fast. Like I started doing literally like getting out of the house faster, getting dressed faster. Uh, I was practicing masking up and gloving up before masking up and gloving up was cool. Now, you know, like now it's all over. Oh yeah, I'm masking up in this. It is awesome. I advocate it, but I mean, that's what I was doing, uh, but just a lot more real reality-based training. And I started like researching and learning about, the fire service hey did this call happen to somebody else and this is when you start looking at the surveys and uh NIOSH reports and near misses and all of that i didn't do any of that none of that man just go go to the firehouse have a good time run some calls come home and you know i just started getting a lot more into the job based on on that yeah i mean it's it's sad when you see, you know, some of that stuff being done so it can be filmed, so I can put it on social media because there's so much value to that. And I, I actually proudly say that I check my rig the same way from the very first day of my career to the very last day of my career. Actually, if anything, it did improve. I did, you know, there were more things I saw people do like, wow, that's really good. I'm going to start adding that in as well. Again, if you never leave it, if you never let that bar come down, you maintain that. But yeah, I mean, gloving up and masking up, Excellent. But again, to a point, it's not a race either. Like, do it thoroughly, you know, make sure that you're not going to get your neck burnt when you go in. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's the thing that creeps in. Of course, it can go too far the other way. But when it's a profession where lives are at stake, and, and you know, we both know this, people get up to the state college lots of times taking classes. I don't know of any other professions really that will take vacation days and use their own personal money to go take classes that you can only use to be better at your job. But the fire service is that. Now, should it be supported and paid and everything? Of course. But, you know, all the, all the firefighters out there, kudos to you if you've taken spec ops classes and, you know, extra medic classes and all these things that you can then bring in because you're not really going to be able to use them anywhere else. So, you know, I think once you kind of grasp that, and find that, you know, to use a term work-life balance where it doesn't bleed in and all you ever do is, you know, live, breathe, firefighting. Um, I think that's when you really get it because it terrifies me that I might go on a scene or might have gone on a scene and not have the skills, not have the tools, not have the ability to make, you know, facilitate that rescue. And I might say I might, of course, part of a big team. But, you know, there's the, the inability to save is already there. Your person in the house fire died. Every cardiac arrest I ever had as an EMT slash medic died. Every single one. So that's already there. So God forbid you add in your lack of ability to do what you're supposed to do. Now you're really adding a crushing kind of weight to, to your profession. Yeah, no, I, I agree. 
I agree. And uh, to go back to something you said uh, just a little bit ago about, uh, you know, people, when we're talking about masking up and all, you're like, oh, people are doing it, post it on social media. There is, there is pros and cons to the whole social media training era thing. I, I don't think that it's bad that people post their stuff out there because there, somebody is going to learn from it, good or bad. Uh, you just have to vet where that, you know, that person, who that person is and where they're getting the information from, uh, as well as do, does that tactic works for you and your agency? Because we, we all have tactics, our local, the regional, we have different staffing, different type of structures, different response times. So we really have to, when we look at these online trainings and these online skills and stuff, we, we need to really take a deeper look at it and take whatever it is out of those videos and implement it into, into ours. But I don't think that it's a bad thing that people put up there. And I'm not saying that's what you said. I'm, I'm just saying a lot of people say that. They, oh, yeah, they, you know, this guy's posting. He has no business posting or this is stupid. Well, it may be stupid to you because you've been on the job for a while or you already know this, this technique. But, dude, I learned a lot from watching videos and people's fires and all. Like, I, I subscribe to the Stockton guys in California, man. If you haven't, man, do it. Like, they wear helmet cam. Every rig, every person on their fires wear a helmet cam, and they put a collage of their fires together. And, dude, like, it's awesome, and it's time-based. You can see when that guy forced that door, what, what does it do to the guys on the roof? And then when they put water, what does it do to the VES guy? It's, it's amazing. It's invaluable information. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just yeah, you know. I follow them as well. They're amazing. And, you know, there's, there is so much good content. Where I have a problem is two things. Firstly, to have the audacity to take a crew picture in front of someone's burnt-out house. F so fucking bad. If I was the homeowner and I saw that on social media, I'd come to the fire station and punch you square in the face. You know what I mean? How dare you glorify, you know, because obviously it wasn't a save. It would be completely intact if you saved the uh, the house, and it's not. So stop patting yourself on the back. And secondly, the big one is this fucking glorification of leather helmets and this belittling of European helmets and this, you know, circle jerk on smoothbore nozzles by people whose bunker pounce is fucking hanging on for dear life. And you don't even own your fitness to get to the fire floor where you'd actually deploy that hose that you're holding, you know, so godly. So if you're going to put your stuff out there and make yourself a fire service leader, then you need to walk the walk in all elements. Just because you can force a door prop doesn't mean you can get your ass 20 floors up before you have to force that door. Yes, 100% agree. Uh, speaking of European helmets, side tracking, I, uh, I, I tried them uh, at a conference. I saw somebody out there, one of the vendors, and they are comfortable. I do not like the fact that it covers my ears at all. Like if you take the looks out of them and like the whole like you know American leather versus European look whatever you take that out, I, I feel like they could do a better job with this. They're here. Have you have you tried one before? 
I've put I've put them on, but the problem is I had so ten eight was supposed to be getting me one a long long time ago, and they said they wouldn't and, and never did. Um, and so I never had an opportunity to retry really it because they're very expensive. Gotcha. Um, but I've had you know numerous firefighters from Europe that started with the, t- the kind of tortoise shell and then went to the European help. They all absolutely love them. Now, when you oh, have yeah. the ones that are actually the way they're supposed to be, they have the comms in the ear, they have the flashlight built into the top, they have the visors that come down. So when you're doing, you know, extrication using a saw, you just pop it down, boom, and then it goes back up again. So there are so many things. It's so light, you know, so small. Cause even, even when I worked in California, we had the smaller California helmet. When I moved back to the East Coast and got this giant fucking, you know, fire sombrero again, I was catching that damn thing everywhere. So when you take a step back, and I've actually, I don't know if you can see behind me, those pictures there are um, schematics of a hydrant, um, one of the Axe Halligan type tools and the helmet. And I think the helmet says like 1927 or something. So, you know, the Navy SEALs don't wear tin helmets for a reason, you know. And so when we demonize progress under the bullshit excuse of tradition, tradition is courage camaraderie service selflessness tradition is not a piece of leather that we stick on our head so you know they look amazing on our office wall while we're wearing something more progressive and that's that's my take on it is i think overall they are better but of course they're going to take getting used to but i don't know about you but every single time i had like an extrication my helmet came off my head and sat on top of the car while i went inside because that damn thing just gets in the way so that's that's my take and i think the technology is simply better and and to me, the helmet is almost a metaphor for things like fitness in the fire service, mental health, with just hanging on for dear life to this old school way of doing it instead of just dropping your ego, forgetting about trying to look like Kurt Russell and actually looking towards the future and saying, if it's really for them, I want the best fucking helmet, bunker gear, gloves, radios, flashlights that I can get my hands on. Yeah, no, I, I, I get it. I get it, man. I get it. <laughs> for sure man all right well then let's talk about orlando what was that transition like from volusia to orlando for you uh it it was uh it was difficult at first uh i was a, a company officer on the squad in volusia i had just gotten promoted I'm pretty much uh i guess a big fish in a small pond going to a, a nobody in a big pond and uh which was fine i knew you know, I knew I had to play the game if they want to call that, but I was a probie again, man. So not a big deal, but I, it, I was just used to doing everything, everything. And uh, in Volusia, whereas in Orlando, if you're on the engine, you stretch the line, that's it. Then you pack your line and you go home. Uh, so that, that factor, I was for the first year, I'm like, this is, I think I made a mistake because I'm not having as much fun as I did in Volusia, you know? Uh, but luckily I was assigned to a really good house with a really good crew that, uh, you know, that didn't just treat me as the, the piece of crap new guy. They, you know, took me under the wing and obviously I got my fair share of shenanigans, but that's part of, being a probie, uh, but they they actually saw the you know the potential or the value and the little bit of experience that I was bringing in from other department and they capitalize on it you know uh, 
and it was it was great after that after that first year it, it was a really good time so i did uh three years on engine 10 slash rescue 10 uh, over by universal studios uh then i got assigned uh put in to go to the heavy rescue got assigned to the heavy rescue uh, until i took the engineer test the driver test uh I spent uh, two and a half years on a heavy rescue, took the driver test, went to rescue one, which is the ambulance downtown. Uh, I did eight months on paper. I wish I did zero months on paper over there. Uh, and then I got assigned a to tower six. I drove tower six for uh, almost three years and uh, took the officer test. I got promoted to company officer in uh 2020 and here we are year and a half almost two years from that promotion went to downtown engine one and uh did one year there and since this last november uh i moved to tower one downtown as the officer of tower one so great great career man i can't complain orlando's given Orlando, just like the U.S., man, gave the opportunities are there for you to take them. And it's up to you to work hard and go out there and get them. That's it. There is no, no other way to put it. So I can't, I can't complain. I've had a great career so far. So when you said you wish you had zero months on the rescue, I'm assuming that was when they started transporting, yeah? Oh, well, I got hired in Orlando we were already transporting. So even on rescue 10, I was freaking transporting and this is not my cup of tea, man. I mean, I'm a paramedic, but it's, it's the abuse of the 911 system that gets you, man. And the paperwork, why are we writing all these stupid reports on all these? I get it. Why? man? I, I understand. That's a rhetorical question, but my goodness, dude, it's unbelievable. Unbelievable. And rescue one, that thing is rescue one runs 6,000 calls a year, man. Just right. It's, it's ridiculous. It's super busy. Two guys on there, man. Like, no, you, you, you show up to work. You might as well, you don't even need to make your bed. You know, it's no, it's not, you can't sustain that for, for a long period of time, you know, and I'm lucky. I didn't spend a lot of time on it. Like for real, there's guys assigned to rescues for years and years and years. So me complaining is, I sound like a little, little bitch really compared to all those guys. So, well, I think we talked about this the first time I was on rescue 70 for a, a lot rescue and engine 70, but and we were on, we butted up with uh, your station five. So we were super busy. We had our area, we had 50, 51, we had 73 that we were also the rescue for. Um, RMC was, you know, the Indian in five zone so we were constantly back and forth there but i remember there were a few orange county guys that went over to you and some of them were like yeah fuck the rescue i'm never gonna transport yeah. again and then they announced <laughs> that you guys are transporting and i was actually at ormc in the the bay when the very first orlando unit pulled in with a patient and there was like golf clap and we started clapping yeah so yeah oh, yeah welcome to the suck man. yeah for sure no transporting is not what I want to do, but it's part of what we do, man. It's, it's 90% of what we do. EMS calls. 
Yeah. So. Well, I think what makes, you know, paramedicine so powerful is that that's where you save lives. You know, say you and I go in and we do a primary and we find someone, we pull them out on the, the front lawn. Well, we just removed a body until someone actually has the EMS skills to resuscitate that person. So it's so, so important. But like you said, it's the, the needless abuse. I had a guy on the show, um, Danny, who was talking about with COVID, they released some of the kind of um, uh, e-med elements. So now there are, there are companies out there that will integrate into a 911 system and eliminate a lot of that. The person will be like, oh, my kid's got a fever. Well, would you like to speak to an ER physician? Well, yeah, that sounds perfect. They do that. And so a lot of the kind of alpha bravos go away then. So that is another way that we can affect, you know, the workload on people. But yeah, I mean, there's nothing worse than, you know, getting four or five calls after midnight and none of them were even remotely, you know, emergency calls. And that's what right. destroys our, you know, our morale and, and people mentally and physically. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I don't know what the uh, what the fix is. I think for us would be right now to add more transport units to take the load off. But yeah, we need we need to be more progressive when it comes to the abuse of the uh, the nine one one system. Yeah, well, with that e medicine element, the person calls. So, like I said, say it's uh, you know new parent is concerned. It's someone whose meds have run out. Whatever. They give them the option first. So, um, you know, if they say, no, I want a paramedic, they get a paramedic. But if they go that route, then the patient saves because they save a lot of money versus taking up an ER bed. An ER retains a bed for a true emergency. And, um, you know, that's one less call that a medic EMT has to run from a station. So, you know, it's, it's right. a win, win, win. And that to me is such an incredible system that I think that, you know, all agencies need to look at. And if I'm not mistaken, it's free to the agency because that company is billing the insurance company of the patient. Directly. You know what I mean? So it's another no brainer. Another, again, like with the helmet, it's innovation, but you have to get over. Yes, this is where we've always done it. Well, yeah, but right. you know, monitoring your radio all night as a chief is also fucking insanity. Yet people still do it. You're not that right. important. We'll let you know when you need it. Turn your radio off. Yeah. No, I, I agree. Completely agree. Hopefully, they'll look into that, man. I've never even heard of that before. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's idea. Yeah, it is. It's genius. Absolutely genius. All right. Well, then, another thing that you and I have got in common is we both had a near career-ending back injury. So... You know, you're deep into fire service now. You've had, you know, some some elements of trauma early in your life. You've been through the story career, you know, some some rescues, some some inability to save. So walk me through that incident and then how, you know, you were able to get through it physically and, and then more importantly, the mental impact. So three days after I got promoted to, uh, to lieutenant on engine one, we had a fire alarm call downtown and i simply stepped out of the the rig and uh i stepped on the paver on the road and i felt a little tweak in my back then uh you know didn't think any anything of it at the moment just went and ran our fire alarm and uh turned out to be nothing and went back to business so that was on christmas eve uh Christmas Eve, 2020. Then uh, I'd go to go back to the firehouse, and my back is super sore, super sore. I just take, you know, some Advil, uh, run a few more calls after that, and I could barely move. Uh, 
took some more Advil thinking that, you know, I just pulled something, you know, you know, maybe take it, I'll take a day off and I'll be good. Well, when I try to get out of bed the next morning, I couldn't even feel my leg at all from my hips to my uh, left foot. I had zero feeling. Uh, long story short, I, uh, I ended up breaking my back and, uh, and herniated L4, L5. And my, my disc was, you know, wrapped around my spinal cord from what the doctor told me, uh, the surgeon told me, but it was, uh, that was probably the, the worst part of my entire life. My worst experience pain wise and mentally because I was helpless, man. And it was during that the Christmas time, the holiday season. So try to get a hold of workers comp people, try to get seen by the, the ER or the, the nurse or the, the center care people was just, you, you couldn't get anywhere. And, uh, the, the unknown factor of you just sitting there not able to feel your leg, not knowing if you're going to be able to work again, are you going to need surgery? You can't even provide or do anything for your family, whether it's financial or physically. Like I couldn't do anything. The pain was 10 out of 10. You know, when you say, you know, ask somebody zero to 10, what's the pain, whatever. Well, my 10 out of 10 pain scale was, was that. Nothing would relieve the pain. And for, for six days straight, I had to just lay on my bed with my belly. You know, I was prone on my belly and my legs were hanging off the edge. That's the only thing that would relieve any kind of pressure all my vertebrae and all my disc and, and the nerves, man. Uh, but that, that was terrible. That was completely terrible. The, the mental, I guess the mental, the mental pain was way worse than the physical pain. Uh, for sure. I mean, what I was, what am I going to do? You know, I, you hear all these stories, you know, you guys can't go back to work. They, I couldn't do anything, man. I, nothing you know it was I, the word is helpless right felt helpless and if it wasn't for you know my obviously my wife my friends uh the, some co-workers they would have been i don't know what i would have done man i mean i was i was a grown man crying man i can't remember the last time i cried like tears and you really find out who your real friends are and who your real family members are when you have a, a situation like this, man. Uh, and dude, I mean, guys were calling and texting and stopping by every day just to shoot the shit, man, because they knew I was just stuck here and going from somebody like me that was super active in the fire service and physically to crippled and not knowing what the future you know held was was terrible man i mean i had guys coming out here just mowing my yard taking care of the pool like 
one guy coming home from shift, I called him. I mean, dude, I need, I need to get up. I need to get up from the bed to go to the chair. You know, my wife had to go to work and he stopped by and he freaking helped me, man. But it's, it's very, uh, it's humbling. It's, uh, yeah, man, it's, it's hum- It's a very humbling experience, which again, I think it's, uh, it, I don't know if I needed that to happen, but it, I learned a lot from it as far as how to do things smarter now. Uh, and, and, and obviously the injury didn't stem from me stepping just on that piece of paper. You know, it's 17 years at the time of doing, you know, firefighting stuff repetitively. I was in gear almost every single day. Uh, just doing some sort of training or a competition or whatever. And uh, you need to let your body rest, man. And I, I never had that. It was workouts every day, training every day. So from this, it came some good, you know, now, now I can, looking back, there was some good that came out of it. But at the time, man, just, Talking to somebody, just talking, man, just shooting the shit, talking to somebody was like winning the lottery, you know, but all good to go now, man. I'm lucky. Well, it's such a an important thing for people to understand. And I wrote about this in, in my book, too. I mean, there's a whole chapter on my back injury for that very reason. When you think about what people struggle with when they retire i think truly what people struggle with a good firefighter that does promote and ends up behind the desk you know where's that purpose now where's that tribe where's that you know that physicality when you're hurt you know i went from being like you you know i mean we got the 343 hero challenge coming up again in september and i'll be there like every year um all of a sudden I was not able to get out of bed. I couldn't pick up my son. I couldn't put my, sh- my my shoes on, nothing. And it was, so you've lost your physicality. You've lost your purpose. You know, you don't wake up or, or go to bed that night knowing you made a difference in the world. Um, you know, you've not got those people around you. And I actually got hurt in the last place where there wasn't really much camaraderie in the first place. Um, and so, yeah, so you've got that kind of mental thing. And then if, like a lot of us do, you have things in the past, but the excitement of being a firefighter has kind of kept that at bay, now you've got all the time in the world for that shit to start coming out as well. So it really is the perfect storm. And if we just look at an injury as, oh, they, they hurt their knee, they hurt their back. No, I mean, that might be now when they're sitting there and, and really the biggest pain that they're in is coming from their mind, not their body. That's right. No, yes, the mental part of it was way worse, man. And we have, uh, we have a good group of uh, peer support personnel in our health and safety division didn't phenomenal job man at uh you know just making sure we were good if we needed anything on the on the you know mental side of it but it's necessary man you you need to look past just the physical injury and see what they really need like deep down inside man because that that made a huge difference absolutely well to the training as well i think you know and again another thing that's really discussed when I have all these people from the sleep world on, all these physical therapists, all these high-level coaches, it is a resounding common denominator that if you don't get rest and recovery, if you don't sleep, you will break, period. And again, 
as a fit guy, you get the dude and the lazy boy. It's like, oh, it's always the fit guys that get hurt. Yeah, because it's the fit guys that train. It's the fit guys that take their job seriously. It's the fit guys that are at the gym on their days off. Um, and of course, you have to be sensible, especially as you get older. I need more, you know, rest and recovery now than I did when I was 20. Um, but when I talk about the work week again, that's where you're also saving money because our people are going to break. It's just physiological science. If you add stress after stress after stress and don't give the body the ability to build, rebuild stronger after those stressors, it's always, oh, I can't believe, you know, so-and-so pulled their back, you know, lifting that light-ass patient or, yeah, Basil just stepped off the rig. What a pussy. No, that was the straw that broke the camel's back from years and years and years of you taking your job seriously and not getting the rest and recovery. Now, yes, you know, you can overtrain too, and that's definitely a thing. But even if you train the right amount, if we're not allowing our men and women to sleep enough, they're going to break. Yes, I, I, I completely agree, man. I completely, we can do a better job at educating, uh, educating our members on those things, man, as well as obviously taking action as trying to reduce those, uh, those stressors and more sleep and, and all of that. But the education part of it on nutrition and fitness and flexibility and uh, hydration is, is, is critical. And uh, we, we've been implementing that over the last decade in our new hire programs. So it just, I'm, it's, we're going in the right direction for sure when it comes to that. At the same time, though, we can be lowering the standard. I'm not saying lower the standard, but education is key for sure. Yeah. Well, you're seeing efficiency in the training world as well. If you look at a lot of um, you know, MMA gyms now, they're not beating the shit out of each other in training anymore if you look at a lot of um high level athletes it's you know it's shorter more intense training periods with with more rest they're not in the gym two three days a week you know so there's a lot more kind of less is more where you're still you know creating a great performance um the other thing that i used that i will absolutely attribute to my recovery where i was fortunate enough not to have surgery um just you know based on the the injury that i had um was foundation training and i know that's you know um jesse initially kind of brought that to orlando so tell me about the success of your surgery because there's a lot of horror stories for back surgery but it sounded like your one was was one of the good ones and then you know what are you using now as far as movement practices to address the imbalances that caused the injury in the first place yeah so uh i had to get a laminectomy decompression done on my back uh the, the doctor was very, the surgeon was super confident. And he said, I do a million of those. This is bread and butter for me, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and uh, honestly, I walked into the, the surgery with zero feelings and pain. And when I woke up from surgery, the pain was gone, like completely gone. And I had feelings in my, my, my toes again. And I, I'm like, maybe it's the anesthetic. The next day, I still had feelings and very, very minor pain just on the surgical side. So the surgery went extremely well. Uh, you know, I, I think it's also being physically fit ahead of time helped out the recovery procedure. But I followed my doctor's recommendation to a T as far as 
not lifting anything more than five pounds, you know, go to rehab, warm up, cool down, hydrate, all those things. I followed it to a T. And when I went to the rehab place, I would do the normal rehab. And when I would come home, I would do that again and again. I had nothing else to do, man. So, I mean, I would just, I took it super seriously. And uh, uh, I gave it one year before I started doing my own stuff again, my, my regular, my gear, my functional gear workouts again, my, uh, my routine again. However, I incorporate a warm-up and a cool-down, either foundation-based or yoga-based on every single uh, – every time we, warm up, we work – uh, I show up to shift. I, I always show up to shift way early. I used to get like a, a bodybuilding workout and then I would do a functional workout uh, or training during on shift with the guys. Well, now when I go into work in the morning, it's all mobility stuff. I don't work out. It's all to get me ready for my day. So I do a full body, like literally head to toe mobility warm up or uh, core. Uh, some of it includes some foundation. I use a lot of resistance band also. Uh, and uh, yoga is usually for a cool down. Uh, but that's some of the stuff that I use now that changed my, my old routine, as well as incorporating rest days. I have rest days where I'm not doing anything today, nothing at all. And, uh, and actually that, that turned out to be super beneficial. I'm actually stronger after those rest days than, than I was before. Now, you don't look as good. You know, you're not all beach muscled up, but functionally, you're able to perform better, you know. And, and really, that's, that's all I care about at this point. You know, it's not about the beach muscles anymore. No, no. Well, I mean, I, I wrote another one in the, in the book when I was in South Florida doing one of those tests where they send all the results to all the different departments, these yeah. two bright orange bodybuilders, I mean, when I say strutting, like fucking farmhouse cockerels around with cut-off shirts <laughs> and everything, and I'm just like, wow, they must be the world's greatest fire candidates because they're acting that way. Um, I didn't know any, you know, my ass from my elbow when it came to testing at that point. And I shit you not, both of them, as if rehearsed, made it to the third floor, the, the, you know, the very first evolution with a dry hose on their shoulder and tapped out. So yeah. that's when I was like, okay, I think I get it. Just because you got to get big muscles doesn't mean it's going to work on the fire ground. So, you know, right. bodybuilding isn't the devil, but there's a happy medium. You know, if you want a little, uh, you know, a little six pack and, and chest and everything as well, knock yourself out. But, you know, there's, there's a point of diminishing return. Yeah, for sure. No, but that's uh, that's my new routine now. Just a warm up before every every day, every shift. Get ready for get ready for the day, man. Brilliant. All right. Well, I know you just taught um, one bad day at FDIC. So, f for the average person who attends a conference, obviously they're already going to be pretty fired up. Um, it's funny. One of the the speakers at one of the conferences I went to spent like an hour and a half screaming at people about ownership and you know it's for them and all that stuff and i'm like dude you're in a fire conference everyone already gets it that's why we're sitting here you know think about something else to talk about but anyway i digress um so 
what are some of the you know the the misconceptions or what are some of the things that the common errors that you're seeing that you're bringing remedies to in your class so the the premise of the program it's to show not necessarily the need but the to to show that rit and it's a, it's a rit derived program obviously there is some leadership and and truck stuff that we discuss in there in survival but it's a rit dominant conversation and the premise of it is i'm trying to change the mindset of people viewing rit functions on the fire ground as just a checkbox for command as a boring job so uh, by bringing uh, data facts personal experiences uh, I, I will prove to you during the program that a proactive rate approach uh, on the fire ground is more beneficial to both the potential down firemen and the overall operation, uh, fire operation. So that's the premise of the, the program. And it's not opinion-based because everybody has an opinion, right? But when you back it up with data, with facts, with uh, videos and, uh, and your photos of trial and errors and comparisons, then you can't argue it. Now, like I said before, Tactics are regional, you know, they're local. So it may not apply to you to a T, but you could still take some of it and apply it to your agency and make it better. So a couple of the misconceptions or what, what you're trying to say, the stuff that I try to remedy is, for instance, Lunar. When you're calling out a mayday, Lunar is a bunch of garbage, okay? It, it does not flow like in your brain. It doesn't flow out of your mouth like you normally talk on the radio. So why, when you're in potentially the worst situation of your life, are you going to try to alter the normal way you speak on the radio uh, and try to figure out that acronym? Uh, it's, it's just make it simple man just tell them what's going on it, the new one is a who what where right just take take when you take personality i mean not personality i'm sorry when in writ or in media situations make it personal okay we take the formality out of it completely and i talk about the stress response physiology that goes along uh with the whole Mayday and RIT, and we even translate that into fire ground performance and high uh, heart rate spikes and all of that initially uh, when we talk about uh, in the program. I later, you know, the ground-based, uh, the rules at the beginning of the presentation and just build it up, and at the end, everything kind of correlates but yeah, don't use that lunar stuff. It makes no sense, you know. Don't waste your time uh, when you key up on the radio. Just give your entire message, man. There's so much radio traffic back and forth. Just hit that emergency button and customize your radio appropriately. 
and transmit your mayday, man. Don't wait for a comeback from command and play that ping pong game. Uh, another misconception, and this is a true misconception, is on a command standpoint, a mayday gets declared. A lot of places tell you to switch operational attacks. If the down fireman, uh, the down fireman, the writ, and the writ chief will stay on the main tack and everybody else switches tack channels. Who has ever tried that in real life? I have. It doesn't work, okay? It does not work. In theory, it works if you snap your fingers and everybody could magically appear on those tack channels. Perfect. But what really happens is that you're actually creating an accountability nightmare because some people are, aren't going to hear the message. Some people are going to switch to a completely different tack channel. And now you have zero accountability on who is where. Plus, when did the incident happen? Did the incident happen right away? Do you have somebody on site to manage that other tack? Who's going to command that other tack channel, right? And if you look at the statistics and the data, well, the majority of the time, you rescue yourself, then one of the one of your crew members rescue you. Then after that, you have another interior crew effects to rescue. RIT is all the way at the bottom. 7% of the time, RIT effects to rescue, right? So what you're telling me is by switching tech channel, you want to take all the people that have the highest probability of getting you out off your radio tech channel, which makes no sense to me. Uh, but obviously, there's a lot more to this. I'm just kind of giving you the, uh, you know, scraping the top here on the topics. But uh, I just want people to be more aware of the effects, the positive effects of a proactive, proactive rate function on the fire ground. Uh, I tell people the goal of the rate company should be to prevent that mayday from happening in the first place. Be proactive, soften up that structure, be mobile, uh, uh, have a good resource selection for your tools. Don't just bring everything. Uh, so yeah, we dive into all of that, man, from the stress response physiology all the way to the command aspect down to the rescue itself. Well, you talked about softening the structure. That was one thing that Hialeah did with my first apartment. Um, there was so many bars in that city, so much from the front door to every single window. So they had what they call a lobster tool on um, definitely in all the chief's vehicles. So they would just start cutting bars, going around the structure, cutting bars. But then Anaheim were, again, very, very well orchestrated where you'd have the strip you know the the writ strip and yeah you would start going around if a ladder need to be thrown you through a ladder if you you know take a take a door or at least kind of breach the door and then close it again whatever it is so you right. create that it. you know e uh, egress option as well conversely you know, the other side i've seen was exactly that it's like a yard sale and you know, four dudes leaning on on pipe poles doing absolutely nothing so talk to me about that with with you know what activity level should that RIT crew um, have on the fire ground? And also, let's talk about which crew you choose, you know, because the ability, I would say, of a RIT team, you know, you're talking about the PJs in the Air Force. You're going to want to really send your best people. Same with the SRO conversation I have a lot with the schools. You don't want to send your overweight 
one year from retirement officer to go protect your children in the school? So that, that's a very difficult question. Both those are very difficult questions to answer because primarily I do not prioritize rate over the, the citizens and the people we serve, okay? Uh, so you can look at, as far as selecting your, your rate crew, well, you can look at it two different ways. I don't want to put my fat people on RIT. I want to put my Navy SEALs on RIT, my Army Rangers on RIT, because they're going to have to do a lot more work and this and that, right? Well, if you do that, then you have your fat people and your lazy people going in to put the fire out and to search for the civilians. And they're not going to be able to do that job well, which will create a mayday potentially for the Navy SEALs to go get them. Right. Or if you switch that around and you're like, okay, well, I put my fat people outside and my lazy people outside and I put my Navy SEALs in so that way they can get in there and do the job right and get the people out fast. Now we don't even need the fat people that are outside for whatever. So it's a double edged sword. The answer to that is maintaining the standard like we talked about in the first place that way you have no fat people that can't perform in the first place all right so uh and it all comes back to your training level of training and discipline your rig company needs to be disciplined and not overcommit the functions on the fire ground I've, I've always said that you can do RIT functions without being RIT deployed. There is a difference between the two. Uh, so for us in Orlando, we have our heavy rescue that does RIT on every fire we go to. Now we're starting to, the city is growing so fast, we're going to need an additional unit to do that uh, because the extended you know, driving response times for the heavy to get on the east side or whatnot. But to me, and even if you look at the statistics and the data, like I just talked about, everybody on the fire ground needs to have a level of survival and rate operations uh, training because the data shows that it's not only the rate companies that affect the rescue. As a matter of fact, the rate company affects the rescues all the way down. You're going to rescue yourself. You're going to rescue your brother. Another company is going to rescue you on the inside. Everybody needs to have a degree of survival and rate training, which we can introduce in the new higher academies, but and build on uh, throughout our career. So that those answers are very difficult uh, to give you a proper answer based on my opinion and my research is I would need to know how your organization operates, you know, how many units you got, are they, you know, the task specific uh, response times and, and all that. So I, it's, it's, it's multifaceted question, man, uh, that it's, it's difficult for me to give you an answer. Now, the one thing that I can tell you that I, I've had people challenge me on when I talk to them about the proactive approach of RIT is 
they're like, oh, well, I want my, my rate companies to be fresh and just standing there and uh, waiting in case something happens and they're fresh. Dude, listen to me. If you can throw a couple ladders and pop a couple doors, then you should really reevaluate what kind of line of work you're in. Okay? That's the way I see it. I don't think – I call it being primed. Okay, if I pop a couple of doors, I'm reconning the structures. I know which egress I, I'm going to take him out. I know which access I have. I already threw my ladders. I, I got my ticks watching the guys going in. On the inside, I'm moving around, strategically placing my equipment where the emergency is happening. Uh, to me, it's like I'm getting primed. I'm warming up to go get the rescue. If I'm just sitting next to command with a tarp on the ground with all the shit outlined, and waiting for you to call me in, those guys are going to be dead by the time I, I show up there. So that's my opinion. But at the end of the day, that's just my opinion. Well, so. again, you said it's, it's complicated, but really, ultimately, from both those examples, if you have a fit, well-trained force, it's an easy decision. Yes. Yeah, that's the answer right there, man. Beautiful. That's the answer. All right. Well, then one more area before I go to some closing questions. Um, you... And your crew um, recently had an incredible rescue. Um, the way it was told on the media made a lot of us laugh because apparently you took in an oxygen tank and uh, all kinds <laughs> <laughs> of uh, yeah. misinformation. So let's walk through that though, because I mean, again, we've been through this amazing journey. You know, immigration, uh, ownership of your your fitness and weight loss. Going from one man to two man to, you know, a fully staffed um, urban department, um, overcoming a back injury, coming back to work. So that takes us here. So all that preparation for a moment to possibly save a life. Yeah. So uh, I was working a swap on uh, a Tire 15, which was a, uh, a tire company that is uh, statistically very slow. Uh, compared to all the other units in the city uh, in a fancier part of Orlando. Uh, that day we had uh, a mixed mix match crew because I was on a swap and uh, one of the firefighters from the that was riding in the back was floated over to the rig and we had a floating district chief as uh, in charge of the operation. So the city was extremely busy that night. Uh, we got dispatched for a single vehicle uh, car accident. Uh, usually when we go single unit to those, it, it means that it's just like a you know minor or whatnot. So we get in the rig, that's probably around 11 p.m. at that time. Uh, all the other units, surrounding units are on calls. I look at our computer and it says that uh, a vehicle flipped. So I tell the guys in the back, hey, this may be like a ejection or a you know, a pin job or entrapment. Uh, and then we turned a corner. The incident was 0.8 miles away from the firehouse, by the way. So uh, we turned a corner and uh, another set of notes populated on our computer. And those were saying uh, entrapped uh, with flames. That's the only two things that populated. So I'm like, okay. I, I key up the mic to I try to uh, hit our dispatch to confirm the notes. And they said, yes, that's affirmative. It's a, there's entrapment vehicles on fire. We're upgrading the response. And as soon 
as I go responding on the TAC channel, the upgrade TAC channel, I could hear uh, our driver say, oh yeah, it's on fire. Like we were on scene already before they even dispatched the, uh, the additional units. So uh, uh, we started, you know, really putting our, our pack on and uh, there was so much smoke. I mean, we couldn't really see the vehicle yet, but we so much smoke in the glow. So we were approaching uh, the uh, car accident and uh, we had to spot a little bit short because we couldn't see. I didn't want him to, you know, if there was debris or, you know, an ejected victim or whatever, I didn't want to run him over. So we spotted a little bit shorter uh, than where we would typically. Uh, so what we found was a single vehicle rollover with heavy damage against the tree. Vehicle was upside down and uh, on fire, engine compartment fire. And we had a visual of a lady uh, hanging hang inside the back there. So we went in rapid rescue mode. Mind you, we're a tower company. We rarely, rarely, rarely stretch lines off the tower trucks. Like it's very rare. Not a lot of water on those trucks, uh, 300 gallons. And uh, so we're going in rapid rescue mode. We tell the driver and one of the firemen to stretch the line. Uh, the right jump and myself walk towards the vehicle. Uh, he tell him to grab the water can and uh, starts hitting the fire. Once I go back, I do my quick 360. I was able to see the lady right by the rear windshield. She was pinned between the top of the back, uh, the headrest and the roof. Uh, I finished clearing the rear windshield with my Halligan and there's so much smoke pumping out of there. Uh, I was able to talk to her she was alert, uh, oriented. I asked her if she was the only one in the vehicle. She said yes, uh, frantically telling us to please get her out. She can't breathe, she, not to let her die, and that her legs are burning. Uh, so at, at that time, I decided I didn't even think about it, but I'm like, There's so much smoke here. This lady's going to die from smoke inhalation before she gets burnt to death. Uh, so I took my air pack off and I placed my face piece on her just so we can buy us some time for the extrication. Uh, so initially she didn't, she, she wasn't receptive to it. So I kind of talked to her, calmed her down. I opened up my bypass uh, to give her some free flow air. And she was able to keep it on. And I just told her, you know, hold this on your face. Slow your breathing down. I promise we're going to get you out of here. So uh, then after that, man, to make the, the long story short, uh, you know, we ran into a couple issues with our hydraulic lines weren't uh, long enough to reach because of where we were spotted. Uh, we had to extend the hydraulic lines. We don't have any hydraulics or wireless. Uh, so we went to plan B, uh, started using the Sawzall just to cut some of the parts out. Uh, we stabilized the vehicle. Uh, 
we had to play ping pong with keeping the fire in check because the water can ran out. And uh, we had to go from the where the patient was, pushing the fire back this way towards the hood. And when we did that, then the hood would flare up again. So we would go back, hit the hood, and keep coming back and forth, back and forth that way. Uh, uh, we were able to sawzall the sea post, one of the rear sea posts. And uh, by that time, the vibroller on the air pack that I had given the lady was started to vibrate. So really, I told uh, Scott, the, the driver, I'm like, we're not doing a full roof removal here, man. We just need to get enough room to yank this lady out because she wasn't pinned. She was just entrapped in there. She, she was a, uh, you know, a bigger lady. So she, we weren't able to just pull her out the rear windshield. We needed to create a little bit of space to get her out. So Scott cut the C-post with uh, his Sawzall. Uh, Corey Steiner and I, my fireman, were trying. Uh, we grabbed the Halligan and pried down on the roof to create some space, popped out the headrests, uh, and were able to, you know, negotiate her legs around the stuff from there and drag her out from that point on. Uh, that's the long story short. So from the time we arrived on scene to the patient was extricated was 11 minutes. Uh, it felt like it was two hours in my head. It felt like, and we were the only unit on scene. The patient was extricated as the second unit arrived on scene. They set up foam operation and all of that. Uh, so, man, those guys on that day on, on my crew, man, did a fantastic job. Uh, you know, operated in, you know, very stressful situation uh, under time-sensitive, you know, criterias. And the, the outcome was good, very good. And what made that story even better for us is that we find out the next day that the young lady that we pulled out was actually the stepdaughter of one of our own. Uh, so that... I mean, it would have been a really cool story regardless, but that made it even sweeter that it was one of, you know, our own daughter that we pulled out. So those guys did a fantastic job, man. But it, I'm telling you, the, the amount of training that we do is what generated that, 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 that response of just like, I didn't even think about it. Here, here's my air pack. Put that on your face. Boom. And, and we're going to work. I mean, a split second decision, there wasn't even a decision. I don't even recall ever thinking, well, what do I do next? You know? No, it was just like, okay, boom, my mask is on her face. Okay, cool. Well, let's finish working. Now, hindsight, I had to do it again. Uh, we will bring the rip pack and assign the rip pack, put the rip pack on the victim's face so that I could keep my air pack on and that, uh, you know, it would have made it easier for us to finish working the extrication uh, on our end. Also, the rip pack has more air than our 45-minute bottles, and it doesn't have a pass alarm that, vibra uh, that rings every 20 seconds that we had to deal with on top of that. So there was a lot of good lessons learned that came out 
uh, from this. Uh, you, you should always be learning, man. It's not because the call went good, the outcome was good, that we need to stop learning. I've already implemented some changes uh, uh, with my crew on that. And uh, those guys did a phenomenal job, man. Uh, all of them. And even though we, we were not on the same crew, we're not used to working together, right then and there, when you have essentially four guys and a floating chief that was commanding this whole thing, not really working together and able to pull this type of critical time sensitive rescue like this, that is a, that's a response to the training that we put in ahead of time. So it, it, it was awesome. Yeah, it was amazing. And obviously, you know, there was uh there was the media side, which like I said, got every element of it wrong. But then there was the fire service side, you know, where it is. It's it's you know, the 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 sum of all your training relies on that particular moment. I I remember in Ahialea, just in in their orientation, we did, you know, extrication evolution, and then they took away all the the power tools and we had to do another car with just hand tools, you know, hacksaws and pry bars yeah. and everything else. And it was a real eye opener that yeah, it's more work and again bringing in fitness but you can actually facilitate a rescue somewhat quickly with that. Another area that we talked about last time that you know, I brought up as well, and this happens over and over again, when you're on an engine company, you go to a car fire, like you said, you flow water. Well, when you think about a car fire, it's a class B fire. And you end up chasing gas all over the parking lot and you know, tires are exploding everywhere. So foam is a huge thing. Anaheim actually had pre-plumbed class B foam in their engines, which was amazing. But then the other thing we forget about is the CO2 tank. So when you go to NASCAR, you watch a fire, they don't pull out a hose line, they use CO. Yeah. But when I, me, everyone, we all forget that we have an amazing extinguisher on the rig that's tucked behind a bunch of shit that actually is really good for engine compartment fires. You're absolutely right, man. And that's another topic, uh, another point that we addressed in the after action report, you know, we ran out of the water can if we ran out of water because we were running out of water on the on the tower before we got supplied by the next due uh, unit you know but i didn't even think about about that now had we had more time or more manpower maybe the thought process would have reached those other suppression you know uh, options but i didn't even think one second about that of everything that was in my head i'm like we need to get this lady out because i'm about to watch her die right in front of me you know that that stress and that's another thing the stress <clears throat> levels that were for me i speak personally that that i was feeling from from that were far greater than any of my other you know grabs i've had four i was part of directly part of four grabs out of structure fires in my career. And they were all unconscious when I got to them. So there was no, uh, I guess, like emotions or no like personal connections or anything. To me, it was like, okay, man, I'm just going to remove you and hopefully I can you know, revive you outside. Well, that, when she was literally like begging for us to please get her out don't let her die. She can't breathe. That added a whole new level of, of stress. You would think that it would be the opposite. Like you're talking to them, but 
know, for me personally, I was like, man, this is not good. Like, and I don't want to watch this lady die right now, you know? So it was, it was different, but it, so we train for that, man. We train for those high stress situations. So you're able to hold your composure, try to keep your heart rate within a certain uh, range so that you can think clearly. Uh, but no, man, it was it was a good call. A lot of lessons learned from it on all counts. Yeah. Well, I think what's so important as well, which is what you've done, you know, whether when, when things go bad, have the humility to storytell and share what went wrong. When things go well, have the humility to share what went wrong because we can all learn from each other. And this storytelling, you know, the firehouse table, as we talked about, the, the positive social media videos, YouTube, you know, the line of duty death reports, all these things, they're a great opportunity. And I have to say, Anaheim, I hold them on a pedestal. But I remember a couple of incidents we had and they, I don't think they ever told anyone ever. And there was so much to pull from those that would have been, you know, lessons learned from a near miss, and they didn't. So as as many great things as that department has, if if they had shared, you know, what we did wrong, that would have been, you know, uber important. One was a hazmat incident. Another one, uh, firemen was almost knocked off a roof with a um, a uh, an aerial that uh, was flowing with no one actually having eyes on it. So uh, you know, two very very you know, near miss potentially deadly incidents. So yeah, I mean, whether it's something small and you just did something stupid, which has been my whole career. I mean, every single fire I look back and go, what the fuck was I doing at that moment? Um, right. But, you know, we can all learn from each other. And then, you know, God forbid we have the same incident. Someone's going to remember you telling this story and go, go grab the rip pack, you know? So yeah. thank you for that. Yeah. No, it's, it's all the fire service is built on learning from each other, man. I'm, I'm, we, we will not experience all the calls we could potentially run into. So we have to learn from each other's experiences. And I truly believe that good or bad, man, good or bad. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we've been chatting for over two hours. Um, so I'm going to steer us to some closing questions so I can uh, let you get back to your family. Uh, the first one I love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend or books um, that can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated? So Fortitude by Dan Crenshaw. Uh, I, I really, really enjoyed that book. And I read it when I hurt my back. And listening to what happened to him in the story made my injuries insignificant, you know, and uh, just his mindset on, on, on everything, on society, his, his outlook on, on life and how he pushed through his injuries is, uh, made my recovery better, but also the, the mindset that he has, I think we need to adapt it a lot more uh, society-wide. Uh, he talks about about the entitlement culture, uh, the st holding standards and all of that. So have you have you read it? I haven't read his, mate. I've read so many Blumen Navy SEAL biographies. I have to kind of spread them uh, out with other ones, but uh, it's I, on my list. You, I will. You would, you would really enjoy it. Uh, you would enjoy it. Yeah. Brilliant. I will, I will so that, make sure that I get it on that sequence. Right now I'm reading a book on how to write a book. 
and it's painful. <laughs> it's not very interesting oh. at all, but I'm writing a fiction next, so I'm having to go completely, you know, from the beginning. So I've kind of stepped away from biographies for a little bit till I can start that process. Sounds good, man. Yeah, but no, but thank you for that recommendation. Good. I mean, there's so many, yeah. so many stories, and obviously our our men and women in the military have, you know, a lot of them have got absolutely amazing journeys um, that are inspirational. So what about a movie and or a documentary? Ooh, a movie. Oh, well, I don't know if I recommend it. My favorite movie is The Wall for Wall Street. But I wouldn't recommend that for people to watch. That's so it's my crazy side going. Uh, to be honest with you, I don't really watch much watch uh, much TV, man. Uh, yeah, The Wall for Wall Street, that's that has nothing to do with firefighting. That's just a crazy movie out there. Uh, James, I don't know, man. You got me for in a pinch here, man. No, you gave me one. That's fine. We can leave it there. What about firefighter movies? Of the few that we have that are actually worth a damn, um, which one do you like the most? I mean, I've, I've watched Backdraft. I watched Ladder 49. Uh, movies or there's some good documentaries out there like Burning Detroit that was pretty good documentary uh, uh, documentary firefighter documentaries I, I really like watching uh, it's a YouTube series on The Rock and FDNY it's four parts it's phenomenal what they have over there phenomenal uh, but those would be I guess my firefighting movies or documentaries beautiful have you seen the brand new film paramedic uh, not paramedic ambulance so it just came out it's actually a guy I had on the show who's a navy seal was in it as an action film it's great but it focuses around this paramedic i'm assuming they probably had some of their seals to do the the um the training for the tactical side i don't think they got anyone from the ems to, to advise on the paramedic <laughs> side because if you watch it you'll be like yeah, I mean, she's doing CPR through a ballistic vest and <laughs> all kinds of stuff. Oh, nice. So, yeah, if you want to, you know, one of those movies, it's a great okay. action film, but it will, yeah, it will make you cringe on the medical side. But, you know, um, actually one of my stunt friends was in it as well. Good, good overall film. It's just if you're in that actual profession, it jars a little bit. But, I mean, that happens a lot. I can't imagine being a police officer watching most films. <laughs> I know, Yeah. All right. Well, then next question. Is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Uh, the, so somebody that I look up to and is, I would say, my fire service mentor is uh, he's retired from us is uh, District Chief Eddie Griffin. He uh, he retired uh, he's active military. Uh, he's he's in New Orleans right now. Uh, this guy, man, is the definition of a leader in all counts, from leading by example, being a good paramedic, uh, a good mentor, holding people accountable, uh, holding himself accountable being fair, a good balance between, you know, hard work and downtime. Uh, he's had a lot of, a lot of adversity uh, in his life. 
And this man, this guy would be phenomenal. Uh, he's a little dry. He's, a, he's like a robot, but he, that's this guy. If, if I could be somebody when I grow up in the fire service, I want to be like him. Beautiful. Let's make that happen then. Because uh, I'm sure. Yes, I'll, I'll, get it, get I'll, it. Share, I'll share his info with you, man. You may have to talk to him a couple of times before he agrees, but. At the end of the day, he will. Okay. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes it yes. takes that. It takes a couple of phone conversations so we kind yes. of get to know each other. I had that with just uh, yesterday with a Canadian Special Forces guy. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, you know, you can then... I think that's what happens when you get people kind of on a roll in storytelling. They get away from that, like you said, that dryness and there's a little more emotion starts to find its yes. way in. And he he's... You, you, you would really enjoy him, man. He's super into fitness to this day and had multiple injuries and surgeries and recovered faster than anybody I could freaking think of on all this stuff and the balance between going super hardcore and not and you, you would enjoy him I'll, I'll share his contact with you for sure brilliant well thank you so then the very last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you what do you do to decompress these days uh so what I do to decompress, I love going out on the water. I love going on the boat. My kids love the boat. My wife, she gets tired of going on the boat. But uh, we're a very outdoors type family, man. Uh, so the kids and I are always biking or going outdoors. But honestly, man, I decompress. I love teaching. I love training, fire service stuff. I know it's crazy, but... It's my job, but it's also my hobby. Uh, we started a teaching company, and we've been going around just like you know, teaching and talking to people and lecturing and hands-on, and it's, it's been great. But so to decompress and to refuel in the fire service, that's what I do. Because sometimes we get jaded with your own department, your own department. You go outside, you refuel with, you know, motivated individuals or new people and then you come back uh but off the job that i love going out on the boat going to the beach riding bikes yeah essentially man that's that's it man not really fancy brilliant well you mentioned about the training so where can people find the website and where are other places to reach out to you online Okay, so uh, the company is called Proactive Rescue Operations, uh, abbreviated PRO. Uh, on Facebook, uh, you can email at profdtraining at gmail.com. Uh, call me anytime, man. I gave my phone number to so many people. You just got to tell me who your name, what your name is, or if you text me who you are, but... So 386-837-8292. Uh, but on all social media platforms, that's it, man. Beautiful. Well, mate, I want to say thank you. Like I said, we've been chatting well over two hours. Um, the second interview was better than the first, as it more often happens. So I think the universe was like, nah, you got some other things to talk about. Let's do this again. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, you're, you've got such an incredible story, such an incredible perspective, you know, from being from another country that gives, you know, a, a different lens as well. I know going from, you know, being very deconditioned, finding your way back to, you know, being a smoke diver and, you know, the elite in the fire service when it comes to that. Um, and then 
leading us through to your rescue just a few weeks ago. So thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. Oh, thank you so much for having me, man. And uh, I look forward to hearing more of your podcasts. And uh, for everybody out there, man, you keep training and uh, there is no finish line. I've been saying that a lot lately. So just keep keep learning, keep training, but have fun, decompress and, and rest, rest. rest.